31 on the dot. Let's get started. Um, so I mentioned it last week, uh, but I have one set left of the uh, Apocalypse Now DVDs, what the Bible says about the end times. If you have friends that are always like scouring the web for prophecy experts or telling you to read this link or that or whatever, um, this is a really good resource to put into their hands. It's all audio, and it actually it's a, it's a walk through the Bible, what the whole Bible, not just verses here and there, but what the whole Bible teaches about things like end times and the millennium and the Middle East turmoil and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I I have it down to my last set. If you're interested in one, they're $40 for a whole set. If you want to stream it and just do it digitally, it's free. This is the CDs for people that prefer CDs. Uh, but I get it away on my website free, the downloaded version because it's really important and what we think about scripture informs how we live in the world and that's part of why we do this Bible study. That's why Jeff wanted us to do this, the owner of Bruce Chris, that's why he puts these meals out every week and uh, opens the place up for anybody that wants to come because he believes and I believe that how we understand scripture shapes and forms who we are as people and how we live in this world in our day-to-day -day lives with our friends and family, you know, in our in our view of everything, politics and religion and who's our neighbor and how do we love them and what kind of what's the world going to and all this kind of stuff. So it's really important and that's why we do this and it's good to be reminded every now and then that it's not just about coming and getting a good meal and getting a nice little spiritual boost for the week, but it's actually about expanding the kingdom of God on the earth through us reflecting his image to every person that we encounter. And, and, and so it's, it's literally what you're doing is, is world changing when we come together to study scripture. Uh, because the idea is that scripture itself has the ability to speak and to transform us. That's the beauty of it. You know, there, there are a lot of preachers, and, and I, you know, I've been through seminary and do preaching classes and sermon prep and all that, and there's a lot that goes into preaching a good sermon. But when it comes to my own personal view of how I do ministry, I feel very strongly that if I just let Scripture be Scripture and get out of its way and just give you the necessary background things that you may not know to let it speak its message, that the Spirit himself can, can apply and can, and can use it in all of our lives. So that's why this, this study, you know, every week, it's just, I always, somebody asks me what it's like, I said, well, one, the food's really good, two, the people are really cool and friendly, and three, I'm just like a tour guide, just, just pointing out, walking us through the book and pointing things out. And so we're coming to the close of a year of studying the book of Exodus. And some people, when I, when I mention that, what do you study? Oh, we're going through Exodus. Uh, uh, they roll their eyes like, really? Can't you do the New Testament or can't you do like the Psalms or something? And it's because, I understand it, I don't get mad at it. I mean, it's, it's the church's fault, it's preachers and teachers' fault. Because what we fail to do is to capture people's imagination with the power of what the Exodus story is. But the Exodus story is the Old Testament gospel. It is the gospel before the gospel. The Exodus story, Jesus patterns his entire ministry around the Exodus. What we've read in these chapters 
all, almost every chapter is in some way mentioned or alluded to or lays the foundation for something that you'll read in the New Testament. And so the more we read and saturate in, the more we see when we read the New Testament, the, the, the meaning behind everything. And so when we finish up Exodus, like I said, we're going to finish the last few chapters. Hopefully by, we may dip into the beginning of next year and kind of do a recap and finish the book. And then we're going to go right into Leviticus because the text itself goes right into Leviticus. first word of Leviticus is a conjunction. It kicks up right where Exodus leaves off. And what Exodus does for salvation in terms of giving us a new image or, or a, a foundational image of salvation, Leviticus does for holiness and for the idea of what it means to be a holy people. So when Peter's writing to Gentile Christians in the New Testament, and he says things like, you're a holy priesthood, you're a kingdom of priests, a holy people, he's using, he's echoing, he says things like, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He echoes Leviticus. And when Paul has his discussions about sexual ethics in the Greco-Roman pagan world, he echoes the holiness code in Leviticus 18. So the new, without applying it one-to-one, -one, they echo it all throughout the New Testament. So as we're doing this study, what you're hearing is the main tune or the melody or the, I don't know music theory very well, so I don't know, but the main score. And then when you read the New Testament, you're going to hear these echoes and these refrains and these new twists on familiar tunes. But for us, they aren't as familiar because we don't spend as much time in it. So let's get back into the text. Last week... Here's the thing where we are in Exodus 34. In, in Exodus 32, Israel rebelled against God. Like, as bad as you can rebel against God, they rebelled against God. In Exodus 33, they don't know if they're going to continue as God's people. The covenant was broken, shattered, literally, and spiritually speaking. And there was this fascinating exchange between God and Moses. And what we, we get into, we get to go behind the curtain into the little tent of meeting where Moses and God, outside the camp, where they would talk face to face. And we saw this really cool exchange of how Moses put himself in the role of the people, taking upon himself the punishment that they deserved if God wouldn't forgive them. And how God entered into this discussion with Moses and God allowed himself to be moved in his decisions. God allowed Moses to determine God's actions. And that's something that a lot of people that just blows their mind. That God's the kind of God who doesn't just sit in heaven, have his eternal plan, his divine blueprint, and move us around like puppets. Or he doesn't just say, well, this is what I really want to happen. Good luck. And leave us to our own devices. It's not this. What, what you see in Exodus is God come down within the people, in the midst of the people, and just when he's about to enter their midst, they completely rebel, and it seems like he's going to be not banished, but he's going to withdraw back to Mount Sinai and to the above and to the, the, the distant that they've known for 400 years. But instead, he comes down, he enters into this relationship with Moses like he did with people like Abraham, where he allows himself to be manipulated is not the right word, because it implies coercion, but he allows himself to be persuaded by Moses to act on behalf of these undeserving people with whom he's made a covenant. 
and it's shocking. It's scandalous grace. The whole thing is about grace. God reveals himself to Moses in his glory. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He says, you can't, you can't see my fullness because nobody can see my fullness in this world and live the tongue. But you can see my afterwards. You can see my behind, backwards. As I pass by, you can see the residual image of what that is. And, and the text doesn't really give us anything about what Moses actually saw. It focuses entirely on what he heard. And what he heard was God proclaiming God's own name and the definition or the, the embodiment of what God's name was, which is a, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, that term for steadfast love, or covenant love, undeserved love. And, and then he goes on and talking about how God doesn't leave the... He, he doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He does punish sin. He does punish the guilty. But he also, even while punishing that, shows that same chesed, that same covenant faithfulness to thousands of generations of those who love him. Even though the effects of the sins of the fathers do continue on into the lives of the sons and the sons of the third and fourth generation, which is a basic Israelite family unit. So he's, he's, he's instilling in them not just his own nature, but also the nature of sin and the nature of consequences. That yes, their rebellion, their sin does have consequences in this world, and it does affect things beyond just them. What you do does affect your children. How you sin will affect your children. And it'll pass it on to them, and it might affect their children and their children. But it's not inevitable. Because at any moment, God is ready to extend, he does extend his grace and his, his chesed, his commitment to the thousands of generations. So his, his grace so far outweighs his just, or his, not justice, his, his punishment in terms of who he is. And that's the thing to keep in mind. When God says, I should I have mercy on those who I have mercy, that's a saying, that's, that's not like Paul uses it in Romans and we just think, oh, it, it's saying that God will forgive some people and the rest will just screw like, that's not the case at all. God's saying, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy was spoken to Moses about the rebellious people who didn't deserve mercy. And, and God's saying, I'll have mercy on who I choose to have mercy. And I choose to have mercy on Israel. So it's this very uh, important exchange, theologically, biblically, between God and Moses. And then, in a, in a, in a ceremony in chapter 34, which we're in right now, they redo the covenant. It's like Moses tore up the contract and the people broke it. God comes down and, and they sit down and they rewrite another contract, literally. They rewrite the other contract. And it's the same one as before. That's the crazy thing is it's not a different covenant. It's not covenant part two or, or version 2.0. It's the same covenant. He forgave their sin after punishing the rebellion, after their repentance. That's the key, their repentance. He didn't force his forgiveness on them. They repented. He forgives their sin. And then the covenant is restored. And the same purpose is carrying on. And so in this section, starting in verse 17, it's right in the middle, he reissues the covenant. Now he does it in abbreviated form. The rest, most of the rest of this chapter, or at least these next few verses, are going to be recaps of things that were all throughout the, the covenant he made, starting in chapter 23. So, so it's like restating, and it's, it's basically sampling these same laws 
as a way of not just restating the entire law again, but of basically saying this is the same covenant. The agreement still stands. So he says, verse 17, do not make cast idols for yourself. Literally, it says do not make gods for yourselves. That was their mistake in the, in the uh, golden captains. They, they said, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. They made their own version of God. And God says, step one, do not do that. I don't like when you do that. And it is dangerous for you when you do that. It fundamentally destroys our relationship when you try to worship a me that you've created. So do not make cast idols. Then, verse 18, celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or literally the Feast of Matzah. You ever had matzah balls? This is the Feast of Matzah, Unleavened Bread, Passover. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. So start your celebration, your year. Start it with the Passover. The Passover is foundational for Israel's identity. That's why your Jewish friends still celebrate Passover. That's why we celebrate Passover, only we know it as the uh, Easter. But it's, it's, it was the same event, same time. It was just Jesus putting his new spin on it. Um, and that's really crass. It's actually not, it's Jesus giving the foundational meaning, not putting his spin on it. But you know what I mean. So then he goes on to say, <laughs> verse 19, the first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. If you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. Now back in chapter 23, we talked about what does that mean if you don't redeem it, break its neck. Whatever it means, it's saying you can't, the firstborn of everything belongs to me. You don't get to keep the firstborn. The only firstborn that you can keep is if you redeem it. And redeeming it is literally you, you give a gift or a, or a money payment in its life, in its place of its life and you receive it back. Now God said, you have to redeem every firstborn son because people do not get sacrificed to Yahweh. But the fact of humans belong to Yahweh still stands. So unlike the other deities of the ancient years, he did not want human sacrifice, but he wanted the thing that underlies human sacrifice, which is the knowledge that all life belongs ultimately to the God and he can do it as he pleases. That was the kernel of truth that was wildly distorted into the practice of human sacrifice. And so what God's saying, that's, that's not me, you're not doing that. But that is a valid principle in terms of your understanding of everything, that come, all life, everything, every firstborn is mine that I claim over. So you can redeem it or you can give it to me and, and, and basically you don't get to keep it, you don't get to use it. And, and donkeys were beasts of burdens, not beasts of sacrifice. So they wouldn't be sacrificed, but they would be their life given back over to God. And the, the breaking of the neck is, we don't know exactly what that means, but it, most likely it was like the clean, the, you know, the cleanest way to uh, kill an animal, the most painless way. Um, but check the previous chapters on the video if you want to catch up on that. So then he goes on to say, uh, redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed, meaning everybody brings a sacrifice. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing and the harvest, you must rest. Even when you think the work has to be done, rest on the seventh day. In other words, Sabbath rest, the idea of one in seven being a day devoted to God, comes even before you, your desire to put the food on your table. 
And the reason is because doing that is an act of faith. It's an act of trust that the God who provides for me six days with my own work will give me enough in those six days to provide for me the seventh. It's, this, it's not a magic formula. It's not, you know, if as long as I keep the Sabbath, everything's fine. No, it's a relational issue. Remember, all of these Old Testament commands are not, they are commands to Israel, and Israel had to legally keep them under this covenant. But behind those legal commands to ancient Israel are eternal principles that reflect the nature of God in some way, shape, or form. And so the Sabbath one is an important one in terms of faith, rest, provision, trust, all of those things. Verse 22, celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the Shavuot, um, with the, this is our first fruits, with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you or if you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. Do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Again, we talk about that cook a goat in its mother's milk. There's, there's some scholars that say that's actually a, uh, uh, an idiom, figure of speech, meaning don't sacrifice a goat that is still nursing, it's still being weaned. That's what it means in its mother's milk. Others say, no, no, it means literally, don't boil one of the, the you know, if you kill a goat to eat, uh, don't boil the, in its mother's milk, literally, like literally boiling. And there's reasons some say that that was an ancient Canaanite fertility ritual, that bo bo boiling the milk in the nourishment of its mother would guarantee your own fertility or your own nourishment. It's not really clear, and we don't really know. It's just one of those phrases, we, it's used three times in scripture. We don't know if it's like anti-idolatry or if it's just like an animal husbandry thing of God saying, no, no, don't kill animals that are that young. Like give them a chance to milk, give the mother a chance to nurse. We don't know. And it's not really that important because the main emphasis of this whole section is give to God the best and give to God what he asks. And in return, God says, as long as you're keeping your end of this covenant, he doesn't say, I'll, I'll give you salvation. He doesn't say, I'll get you to heaven. None of that. They are already saved. They're already God's people. He says, I will protect your land. I will keep the people from coming in, from, from, from taking your territory. Because your territory is really my territory that I'm using you to be stewards of. Going all the way back to Genesis 15. All the earth belongs to the Lord. Nobody, get, nobody owns any land in the Bible. It's all God's. He allows people, he gives it temporarily to resident tenants to work it and to take care of it, just like Adam and Eve, and to put in the garden to work and take care of it. And so he's promising them to send them into the land. And he's saying, if you keep the covenant, I'll keep my end. And my end is to bless you and protect you. I'm your king, I'm your sovereign. Your end is to work the land and to honor me with everything you do. Because you're going to be the, the light that I shine to the nations. You're going to be the people through whom all the nations are going to see what a relationship with the God of the universe looks like, as opposed to the chasing after the idolatry and the beliefs and the practices that they've all been accruing ever since the days of Cain. So then he says, verse 27, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words. There with the Lord, forty days and forty nights. 
without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. That he should be capitalized. It's not in the NIV. And so it reads as if Moses wrote the words. But it's not. The previous referent in this sentence was God. And at the beginning of the chapter, God said, I will write on the tablets my words. So this is another case where just that he, it's he in Hebrew, but the he that it's talking about is God. God wrote all these words of the covenant, a.k.a. the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. The covenant has been re-inaugurated. It's been restored. Israel is back on track after jumping the rails and, and seeming to head off of a cliff. God has graciously taken them and put them back on track. And now things are set to continue as they were when Moses was on the mountain originally receiving these instructions from God. So then, verse 29, when you spend four days, four nights on the mountain face to face with the God of the universe, you don't come back unchanged. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that, literally it says, the skin of his face. I don't know why I leave off the skin up, but in Hebrew, the skin of his face. He was not aware that the skin of his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Anybody ever seen the statue that Michelangelo's carved of Moses? It's like very famous. It's Moses the lawgiver. It's this majestic marble. I think it's Michelangelo. One of the ones that's named after Ninja Turtle. Um, so it's the, this, this statue of Moses giving the law, and he has horns. If you ever look at it, you don't Google it. Pull it up on your phone. You can see the most famous statue of Moses ever in art history. He has horns, literally, on his head. And a lot of people look at that and go, "That's weird." Okay, artistic license, maybe? No. This passage, when it says his face was radiant. That verb is only ever used here in this section. And it's the verb Quran, Q-A-R-A-N, and it comes from the word Karen, Q-B-R-E-N, which means horn. And the, 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 it's a metaphor. It's He had horns of light coming out of his face. In other words, light was radiating out. It wasn't just like, oh, he's shiny happy. It's like this fearsome, this these, these horns of light were coming out from his face because he had been with God. That's where the horns comes from. Because ancient other translations just literally translated as horns because they just, well, that's the word. And, uh, and so it was incorporated into depictions of Moses. But that's what it is, is, is that he had these, it wasn't just a glow, right? It was like, like it's shooting, stabbing, like shooting, radiant. Because he'd been in the presence of the God who was the consuming fire on the mountain. It changed him. And, and God gave him some of his radiance, some of his overwhelming, fearsome radiance. Our word radiant is happy. But the biblical radiant is like fierce, shining brightness. Horns almost. Anyway. So, verse 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, and the skin of his face was radiant, they were afraid to come near him. It wasn't a happy, shiny thing. It was a scary thing. Just like they had been afraid to come near Mount Sinai when they saw and heard the voice of God, and they saw the lightning and the fire and the thunder and everything. Moses is having some residual 
uh, imagery of Mount Sinai. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him because they're like, you know, they're freaking out. But he says, no, 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 come back. So they come back and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. So when Moses gives, him the, gives them the commands now, they finally get the Torah. They finally get the covenant. And it's explained to them by this fiery, radiant person who has just spent 40 days in the very presence of God, face to face, on Mount Sinai, God's dwelling at this point on earth. And the whole next section of Exodus is going to be, how do we get that dwelling to be portable and to go with us wherever he leads us? So this is what's happening at this moment in Israel's history. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Now, veil is, we think, a wedding veil, right? Like, how would that stop the brightness? You know, it's kind of see-through. Or like a nice cloth. Think of it like, a, like, a, like the veil that's worn in Islamic cultures today, the hajib. Think of it like things that covers everything but the, the eyes, right? Just covering the face for their protection, for their comfort. Because it was too, whenever he would have this encounter with God, when he'd speak to him, it was too much for them to handle unprotected. And so uh, whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. Then when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that the skin of his face was gradient. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So there's this already this separation between the holiness of God and the commonness or the normality of everyday life, this, this veil of separation. And it's Moses' face. There's going to be another veil of separation in the Holy of Holies itself. And then on the cross, there's going to be a tearing of the veil. And Jesus is going to say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the idea of a holiness that was once unapproachable and fearsome is now going to be something that comes and dwells within God's people. So all of this is underlying what we see in the New Testament, what we're going to see in the New Testament. It's preparing the way. But Moses becomes a little, a little like, like God's mini-me, <laughs> like a like little, little version of God to the people. God's power is overwhelming, it's, it's, it's fearsome, and it's, and it's awe-inspiring, and it's majestic. So he gives some of it to Moses, so Moses can be his intermediary to the people. There's going to be this system, and this is going to characterize Old Testament religion. You don't just approach God on your own terms. God will set the terms for how he is approached, not because he's a prideful, arrogant God, but because he doesn't want us to be consumed by it, and he knows the degree to which we are fallen and sinful in this world. So he puts buffers in place. He puts safeguards in place. He insulates himself. Insulation is a great way to think about holiness and the levels of purity uh, because that's what the purity laws are in the Old Testament. They're insulation to prevent the blast furnace purity of God from consuming the brittle tenderness of the people that approach you. Tender, like T-I-N-D-E-R, tender, fuel. So then this section actually ends into verse 35. Remember, chapters and verses are not original. They're added thousands of years later. Um, but this section ends, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. And then, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. 
Whoever does any work on it must be or will be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now, these are stock phrases. Do not do any work doesn't mean don't pick up a spoon. All right? It doesn't mean don't walk more than X number of paces. It doesn't mean any of the things that it had come to mean by the first century. What it means is what it means. Do not do your job. Do not do work. Do not do your occupation. Do not do the thing that you rely on to make money on the seventh day. You do that for six days and do it well. Seventh day, stop it. And then it says, don't even light a fire. Now, this is taken to extreme in, in modern cultures, you know, even like turning on a light switch on the Sabbath by some Jews is seen as you're not allowed to do it because it's the equivalent of lighting a fire in your home. Um, but, but if anybody ever tried to make a fire without matches, like just on your own, it's really hard. It takes a long time. Even if you have the little flint, it's still really hard to do. It's a job. It's work. It's part of your everyday life. It wasn't just like flick a match or your lighter. Like it was, a, it was work. What that's emphasizing to the people is don't work on this day. Don't labor on this day. It's a day of rest for you and for your flocks and for your herds and for your manservants and for your maidservants and for everybody living among you. Because one of the things that God wants the world to know is that he's a God who has built in not just work into this world, which he has. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work was given to people to do before the fall. The futility of work was the consequence of the fall. Spreadsheets were the consequence of the fall. You know, TPS reports, whatever you got to deal with. That's all maybe a consequence of the fall. But the actual work was a God-given vocation. But it was to be limited. There was to be a day of rest to reset the cycle, but also to show that God's a God who provides on the day when everybody else is running after whatever the world's telling them to get, to gather, to control. Uh, which is what now you have to go back and do, because we're out of time. So go back to your God-ordained work, fulfill your creation mandate. If you're interested in the uh, the apocalypse now, what the Bible says about the end times, everything going on in the world, ISIS, Middle East, all that kind of stuff, um, check it out. And also, if you hear things about Revelation and you always wondered about that book, I have a DVD course that walks through the entire book as well. But we got to go. So there's plenty of seconds if you want some. If not, we'll see you next week, Exodus 35.